And I think on, on the, this aspect of racism, we are bound to get it wrong as white people. I am bound to get it wrong. I know that, you know, there'll be people listening to this probably who think, oh my goodness, she smacks of white privilege, you know, but at least I'm trying. That That's the thing. I'm trying. I'm, I'm open to having conversations and I'm open to people saying to me, well, Rachel, that wasn't really what you should have said. And I go, okay, well, I'm, I'll learn because life's about learning, isn't it? Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview thoughtful, inspiring, and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with vibrance and energy. And Zestful Aging Podcast is my legacy. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our lovely music is courtesy of Judy Banker, who is a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more about her on judybanker.com. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses, and other offerings, hop on over to zestfulaging.com. I know that everyone is feeling really stressed and anxious right now. We're all unsettled and feel out of control. So I created a free download for you for maintaining mental health based on my 30 years as a psychotherapist. Um, Just go to zestfulaging.com and it is all yours. Well, I've got my little loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side. He's anticipating his walk. So let's begin. We have a fantastic interview for you today, something I think that's very thought-provoking and important. Rachel Lancaster is the founder of Magnificent Midlife, and she wants to change the world for women in midlife and beyond in the direction of how the world views us and how we view ourselves. She is passionate about challenging outdated ideas about menopause and aging. And because she's so keen about ending prejudice today, we're going to uh, address racism. And we are aware that we are two privileged white women attempting to understand an experience that we know we can never really truly appreciate. But we're hoping our efforts may help others to confront some of these really important issues. Welcome to the program, Rachel. Thank you, Nicole. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. Uh, I am thrilled to have you. And we're going to talk about something really difficult today. Um, you know, normally we talk about different aspects of aging. Um, I know you're an expert in menopause with your own show. You talk about a lot of different elements of aging. But today we're going to dip our toe into something that's that's really, really painful and complex, particularly for two white women podcasters. Yeah, it is. I, I feel rather awkward even sort of talking to you and coming on on air to talk about this as a, a very privileged white woman. But um, like you, I just hope that, you know, by opening up these conversations that maybe we can extend those conversations to lots more people because I really hope with everything that's been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement recently that 
we have reached a point of real change. That that is my hope. That is mm. what I am. I'm feeling. I I hope really. Mm-hmm. Many people are that like that too. Like finally, something looks like it's shifting, mm-hmm. um, and we are really confronted head on with the reality of systematic or systemic rather racism. And Rachel, I know that you have said that you have experienced your own awakening in the last year uh, regarding race and racism. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I really have. I mean, I think that the first thing that that struck me was when the white woman um, called the cops on the black man in Central Park. Mm-hmm. And, and that white woman was somebody, you know, not that dissimilar to me. And I had been in the ramble in Central Park. I used to live in New York. And I saw this woman, I saw her doing it. And for the first time, I think white people or people like me, I could see what was happening. There was no pretense. She was Mm. absolutely calling on her white privilege Mm. and weaponizing her whiteness to attack this black man. And then that was kind of like the catalyst for me beginning to wake up. And then with the murder of George Floyd and everything just kicking off, there was nowhere to hide anymore. We couldn't say, well, this isn't our problem. This is nothing to do with us. And it it really is. And I've had my eyes open because I think often the the thinking around racism, it, it really focuses on the interpersonal element of racism. And therefore, you know, if we are surrounded by white people and if we don't say something mean to a person of color, we assume we're not racist. Mm -hmm. But what these events have shown me over the last few months is that we are racist when we are silent. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, by being apathetic by thinking it doesn't involve us by not engaging with this issue we are part of the problem and if we are really nice people Mm. we're almost even more of the problem because you know the outright racists are kind of easy to identify and to deal with but the nice people who don't do anything we are just as much part of the problem. I see, complicit in just letting the system maintain its status quo, which, as we know, is built on white supremacy. Absolutely. And, And I had never thought about the term white privilege. I just, it hadn't occurred to me. Um, If I may, I'd like to read something from a book I've been reading. I've been reading so many books and listening to podcasts. Mm -hmm. I've interviewed a couple of wonderful black women on my podcast who've talked to me about this issue. But one is a book, um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo Lodge. And it's very interesting because I think there's a tendency amongst Brits to think this is an American issue. Mm-hmm. Well, it ain't an American issue. <laughs> this is this is a worldwide issue. And guess who started slavery? The British. So, uh-huh. you know, we uh-huh. need to fess up here and, you know, take our share of the blame. And we live with the legacy of that in the UK right now. So Rennie Edo Lodge has written this really great book about the British experience of race and racism. And this quote that she, uh, I'm going to read, if I may, about white privilege really just sort of 
struck it home to me. So mm-hmm. white privilege is an absence of the consequences of racism, an absence of structural discrimination, an absence of your race being viewed as a problem first and foremost. So it's not something that happens to us, but it's it's the lack of things happening mm-hmm. that gives us that white privilege. And then she goes on to say, she says, when I talk about white privilege, I don't mean that white people have it easy, that they've never struggled or that they've never lived in poverty. But white privilege is the fact that if you're white, your race will almost always certainly positively impact your life's trajectory in some way. And you probably won't even notice it. So I've, I've been reading things like this and things, suddenly it was like, oh, I get it now. Okay, mm-hmm. I get it. There's something so, it's so baked into our culture. We don't see it anymore. And one of the examples I've heard, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of learning about this. One of the examples that I've heard is like, how often do we go into a grocery store and just assume that most of the people are going to be of our race. Yes. I mean, that's just a given, of course. You know, why would it be any different? That is not the experience of African Americans in our community, that they are always an outlier. And what it must be like to live your life always having to put walls up or feel in some kind of protective mode. And as a psychotherapist, I wonder, what does that do to your psychology to have to to have to always be vigilant because you are not part of sort of the acceptable um, group, for lack of a better word? Well, in so many, you know, places in the world, including where you are and where I am, white is the default. Mm -hmm. You know, um, dolls are generally white. Uh, And uh, for example, but I I did an analysis actually of um, British women's magazines for older women. So there's there's two, there's um, Woman and Home and Good Housekeeping over here that are sort of pretty high end. And I subscribe to an app which allows you to see all of the um, covers in one place. And for the last two years, both of these magazines, so that's 24 issues, each one had had not a single person of color. Wow. And the other had had um, an, an Indian lady who was British born, who was in that lighting, almost as pale as a white person. Um, And then if you go back a little bit further, they'd managed to get Michelle Obama onto the cover of the magazine. (laughs) They managed. But I was thinking, you know, (laughs) how would you feel if... The most popular woman in the world. That wasn't a real (laughs) stretch for them. It really wasn't, was it? But, you know, just imagine, yes, you're going into a shop and you're looking at the magazines and you never see somebody who looks like you. And this is where I'm going to tell you the little personal thing that in terms of my own personal um, revelation, I suppose, this year and discussions I'm having with my son. My son is, is 22. He's actually in New York at the moment and I'm here in London. Um, now, my son is half Chinese, so I am the mother of a mixed race child. And uh, I speak Chinese, so I've always pushed the Chinese culture and he's always had, you know, elements of both sides of his culture. And I've only ever seen it as something positive. 
But what I found really interesting in the conversations we've been having since this is that he's talked about how, well, internally he can see that he is both white and Chinese, but externally he's neither one nor the other. And he's talked about how his inter well his experience of life growing up was very different as a person of colour, even in Hackney, which is one of the most diverse boroughs in London, which is where he went to school. And I never thought about that. And reading that book by Reniedo Lodge, there's a whole chapter in that book which talks about the white mothers of mixed race children. And it was really hard for me to read because I could see myself in there that I had not made allowances. It had not occurred to me to be anything other than positive, nor to make allowances for the experience of life that he had as a half Chinese young man. And so what would was, those have been, Rachel? What would now knowing what you know, after reading, after world events, after just uh, being so thoughtful, what would you have done differently? I would have talked about race. I, I would have, um, I would have been aware, and I would have probably asked him more about his racial experience, whether he was encountering any difficulties, because I just assumed he didn't. I just, you know, it was a very diverse school, very mixed, um, but there was nobody that ex exactly fitted his ethnic background there. Nobody. Mm. So he was, he was one of a kind. Mm -hmm. um, and as a white woman, I have never experienced that. I've lived in China. I might have been the only person in a tube carriage who was white very, very occasionally. Um, so I have experienced that you know, many years ago. But to be experiencing it now is quite difficult. The funniest thing is now, actually, this is a, just a little offshoot. He's now living in Brooklyn, and he lives in a very Hispanic area. And he can pass for being Brazilian or any kind of <laughs> South American. So suddenly, he's living in a place where people look like him. <laughs> Although they and are not. It's, they're it's not. A, it's an illusion. <laughs> it oh is. Oh, my God. Goodness. So he feels very at home there. <laughs> it's really interesting. Does he speak Spanish? He does, yes. Yeah, oh, perfect. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's a whole <laughs> new, uh, uh, it's a whole new way, you know, to think about, well, I can pass. He's mm -hmm. passing, but for mm -hmm. something that, oh, my goodness. And he's yeah. always, it's funny, actually, there's another little tangent. He's always had fun playing that, you know, what's my ethnicity game? Because oh. people usually can't get it. They just can't work it out. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Hello, Zesties. I want to tell you about one of my all-time favorite exercise and stress reduction tools, which I am really relying on during this quarantine. But I've sung its praises for years. The benefits are seemingly endless. Uh, it's great for toning and strengthening muscles. It improves your lymph system, your metabolism. It helps with joint pain and balance. And it's even used by NASA astronauts because because it's such an efficient way to exercise. And if you're older or you're worried about your balance, you can order a stabilizer bar to hang on to. I'm talking about my Needac Rebounder Mini Trampoline. 
I put on my music and I have my own dance party. Because for me, exercise needs to be fun and invigorating. Otherwise, I don't want to do it. Now is not the time for the philosophy of no pain, no gain, because we're in enough pain. This is a way to feel good and energized and have fun. It really does help mood as well. And I like that NEDAC is made in the USA and it is really solid. I've had mine for 15 years and it's still in great shape. The NEDAC Rebounder will help us get through this quarantine in better shape mentally and physically. And there's also a model that folds up if space is an issue. One of my clients puts it on her driveway and uses it while she's watching her kids during the quarantine. Anyway, I can't recommend NEDAC Rebounders enough. They are a worthwhile investment in your health and overwhelm overall well-being, especially now. If you are interested in a mini trampoline, please don't buy a cheap one. Those can be actually dangerous, and it is really worth uh, investing in a good quality one. And right now, if you use the coupon code just for Zestful Aging listeners, the code is Zestful, they are going to include a free cover for you. So go to to needac.com. It's N-E-E-D-A-K.com. And if you have any questions, you can contact me at zestfulaging.com. I really am their biggest fan. So what has it been like for you, this, this sort of coming of, I I guess, conscience, this experiencing of awakening, you're also, you said, learning new terminology. Oh, my goodness, so much, yes. I mean, there's another book that I think actually every white person should read. It's Me and White Supremacy. And when I, actually, when I say white people, I think it's white and this book talks about white passing people because mm. when we talked about, you know, that racism is everywhere in the world earlier on, it is because we all like to other somebody. We all, every culture has a culture that they look down on. Um, and it, it may not be anti-black racism, but, you know, think about in India, particularly where, you know, whitening creams are so popular because whiter skin is thought of as better um even in places like the philippines and southeast asia that's the case the darker you are you know the less popular you are in china it's the same and Um, even in african-american culture yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so so that in fact um is talked about as um the internalized racism where even when people of color have their own racism against Mm. people who are slightly different to them or a different shade, you know. Anyway, so the terminology I've been looking at, one that's one, the internalized racism, but white fragility has been really interesting. I didn't know about this, and there's another wonderful book just called White Fragility. But this is when white people get very, very defensive about race. Um, 
And uh, I think perhaps my background and experience of having had a mixed race child means I'm not I'm not at all frightened to talk about race, but a lot of people are. And because of this issue of, you know, if they're not overtly doing things that appear to be racist, then for anybody to suggest they are racist really hurts. But I think now the time has come where we just have to accept that, you know, we have to kind of accept it and move on if we're going to try and change the situation. Another thing is uh, tone policing, which I've also found really fascinating. So tone policing is when white people in particular have a real difficulty with hearing the message from black people because of the way it is presented. Ah. And, uh, you know, I'm like this. I, I'm very sensitive. I don't like it if people shout at me or are aggressive to me. And so I've been really thinking about this whole tone policing because I realize, you know, that I have to get better at listening to a message, even if I don't like the way it sounds, because it's not my place to be policing somebody else's tone because guess what if i'm in america i don't have 400 years worth of oppression mm -hmm, mm -hmm. behind me and, we have and the privilege of saying let's make it a lovely tone and yeah let's uh, but when you have been when you have been oppressed for 400 years you've tried and, and the history is we've tried everything and mm -hmm. you're not hearing if we take a knee you don't like it if we we, you know, do this, you don't like it. If we do it in graffiti, there's nothing left. You're not hearing. Mm. I heard one um, impassioned black woman describe the rioting as grieving. And when I heard that, I thought, my goodness me, yes, I can see that, you know. And then Trevor Noah has talked about how the social contract has been broken. Mm -hmm. So don't mm -hmm. expect us not to run crazy mm -hmm. because the social contract is not there anymore. Mm -hmm. I saw that particular episode and, um, and then I saw how many times it was shared. And I thought he did such a good job at mm -hmm. really getting to the heart of this, like, what choices there's no choices yeah, yeah. that's the whole point mm. so that that's been very powerful as well and mm -hmm. and sort of acknowledging that i just just have to take it in the way it is presented and not try and make it nice and palatable for mm -hmm. my gentle little white ears <laughs> so here's a here's a, another tough um question and just really wondering and I struggle with this but when you're out and about and probably not as much as usual because of COVID um, when you are let's just make up an example you're in the store in the in the food market in the grocery store and you have uh, someone who's African-American behind you in front of you have some kind of encounter with someone you don't know who's African-American how do you relate to this person, um, given the fact that you are really committing yourself to understanding their history and their oppression? That's a really interesting question, because I don't find it easy to talk to anybody that I don't know. <laughs> you know, I could talk to you on a podcast, but, uh, yeah. but actually talking to somebody having a conversation with them in the street, you know, mm -hmm. that I don't know is, is difficult. But I do go out of my way to acknowledge 
particularly um, my post people, um, the people who come and pick up my garbage. You know, I try and make an effort to always, you know, talk to them, say hello, not engage them in conversation because they're busy, you know. But um, but it was interesting because one of the um, ladies that I had on my podcast, Kim McCormick, who has the most amazing way of getting through white defensiveness, um, she talked about, you know, if everybody in your social group looks like you, make an effort to reach out to people who don't. Mm -hmm. And she had a wonderful phrase, and I am trying to learn from this, but it, it doesn't come easily for me as an introvert. But she said, if you want to break the ice, you've got to be willing to be the icebreaker. So thank you for that reminder, Nicole, that I need to make more of an effort. <laughs> you know, but I have a, a very a self-consciousness about it because I've read people going up to uh, people of color and saying things like, I want you to know I see you. I see you. I value you. But I am so worried that that will come off as sort of condescending or uh, like, oh, really? Do you see me? Do you see me, white lady, with, you know, what, your I privilege? Think, I think we need to be really, really careful about that, actually. There's another book that I'm reading at the moment called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by Austin Channing Brown. And... Um, she talks about her life as a black woman at school, at college, professionally. She works in Christian organizations and the amount of racism she's encountered mm. is quite shocking to read about. But she talked about one day at work where she'd been on a bus, then she'd been on a boat and she'd felt really sick on the boat, then then gone to a restaurant. And one of her colleagues had come over and had said, are you all right? Um, and she said, yeah, I'm fine. And the colleague said, yes, I, I appreciate, you know, that you're the only person of colour here. I just wanted to make sure you were all right. And, and Austin said, yeah, I'm fine. And Austin was thinking, well, I was the only black person on the bus. I was the only black person on the boat. You've only just noticed that I'm the only black person in the restaurant. <laughs> so I can come off as really... Um, I don't know what what what's even the word. Well, like? there's another term, isn't there? There's white centering, ah. where where we make it about ourselves. We make it so that you know we're trying to feel good. Ah, okay. And then we make it about us again. We make it about us feeling good, which goes I back see. to the whole white fragility that we get upset, you know. And then you know other people are having to sort of worry about our upset. Well. So no. it's like you're demonstrating, look, I'm not racist and I'm going to prove it to you. Yeah. I see. And, and, and talking about this, it's like not all black people have the same feelings and views and needs and ideas. So for one person, they may appreciate, um, you know, an overture and another black person might say, what are you doing? This is so awkward and so, you know, inappropriate. I think it comes down to, you know, if you have a relationship with somebody, then mm. by all means have those kind of conversations, but not randomly in the supermarket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or at least, you know, make the attempt to reach out first 
rather than going straight in with racism because mm-hmm. I just that that just to me it just feels false mm-hmm. and it feels like there's other words like tokenism mm-hmm. white saviorism uh-huh. um, optical allyship all these oh. things I've learned from this book <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You know, it's interesting. I have a client. uh, She's a white woman, privileged white woman, and she is just tortured about what can I do? What can I do? And she spends time on Instagram where there's a lot of judgment about, you know, you should do this. You shouldn't do this. Don't do this. You should do. Why aren't you doing this? And she's just sort of paralyzed about how can I help what can I do that's meaningful? Um, now, there's a lot of pieces of this, but do you have any ideas about where to start? I would really start with that book, Me and White Supremacy. Okay. Um, that started as an Instagram challenge. It was a 28-day challenge. And uh, so it's, it's in uh, four weeks. And each day you have a topic to think about and you're encouraged to journal on it and to really do the work and really excavate your internal racism. And it's very, very powerful. I've been really impressed with this book, actually. It's completely accessible. You know, it's not sort of couched in difficult language or, mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's not blaming because ultimately she's not looking for us all to feel guilty because guess what? If we feel guilty, what are we doing? We're making it all about us again. Oh, We're centering right. again, aren't we? <laughs> so so the point is I think start with that book read it at the end um it talks about what are your commitments going to be what can you do and then there's all sorts of resources actually um I've created a document which has got all sorts of black lives matter resources in it uh-huh. which you can make available in the show notes mm-hmm. um I've written all loads of films you can watch you know things you can do people you can follow organizations you can support financially um so lots of ideas but I would start with that book and really explore all the different facets to it because you know as I've said it's just there is so much and Kim McCormick on my podcast again lovely lady she said you know this is not a sprint this is a marathon Mm -hmm. and this is a lifetime of unlearning that we have to do a lifetime indeed I mean look we there was this in in Egypt I mean it goes long way back and as you said um you know every culture uh has somebody in their culture that is uh victimized that is Mm -hmm. oppressed and and there's some biologists that talk about um, that there's a biological need to separate yourself and group yourself and determine who's in and who's out, and that there's some seeds in in our human brains that are about um, who am I like and who's safe, who do I stick with. I don't know enough about that to understand it fully, but I thought that that was a challenge as well. Very, very interesting, different kind of look at, you know, how humans and our brains operate. Yeah, that's fascinating. There's also the thinking, isn't it, that eventually we'll all be mixed race, you know, there won't be any, there won't be any black and white or brown, we'll all just be brown (laughs) and then um do you know much about this idea that we're all from africa i hope so 
Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. Right. I mean that there we're all linked back to mm. the you know original mankind, mm. and that came out of Africa. Mm. So that we're all you know if you go back far enough, we're all from the same tribe, so to speak. Mm. It's it's just so complicated, isn't it? But I really do think we. There's another phrase I picked up. It's just we can't just chop at the branches. We need to chop at the root, and we need to do this work to unpick this at the very deep level, and to get rid of the institutionalized racism. Which, you know, I watched the documentary The Thirteenth about um, institutionalized racism in mm -hmm. the states, and it was just eye-opening to me that there were all these structures in place to stop black people being able to live in the same way that white people do and and even now you know it's more difficult for black people to vote than it is mm -hmm. for white people to mm -hmm. vote and therefore guess what happens they don't get their represented. vote they're not yep. represented mm -hmm. and things don't change um, do you have a sense of how Brits see this? I mean, do you think most Brits look at this as, well, there's the United States being, you know, archaic again and uncivilized? Or do, do you think most Brits have a sense that this is a worldwide problem? That's an interesting question. I think um, we're very good at seeing worldwide problems, but assuming it doesn't pertain to us mm -hmm. <laughs> that's my thinking about the british ah. um you know it's everybody else is bad but you know we're superior it's a bit like covid ah. now the rest the rest of the world is wearing face masks but oh oh no we can't possibly wear face masks oh that would ah. be absolutely terrible <laughs> i see so we always you know we we're individualistic aren't we rather than thinking about um the whole we're much more interested in in me the individual so i think um i is think that a a of, is that relates to brexit as well oh yeah in Definitely. what ways to in what ways <laughs> um well we think we're better than everybody else which mm. i can't stand it just drives me nuts <laughs> mm. that's another don't get me on that soapbox i'll be <laughs> here all day <laughs> but um ugh. God, yeah, I don't know. It's it's it just is very very challenging. But I think racism in the UK is more insidious. It's hidden, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. It's not so in your face, you know. It's not blatant in Parliament <laughs> as it is now blatant I in the see. US government in policy. The, in, it seems oh, to oh, me. Sir, and we can just say Trump. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean that that is super scary. Well, we're trying. We are trying hard. We are we are looking up to Trump collectively as a nation, which is deeply embarrassing too. But um, mm -hmm. there you go. Oh my goodness! But you know, I'm wondering. You're really um, taking this seriously. You're 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 embracing this. You're learning. Is there a point where you have to sort of take a rest? So you like go out in your garden or take a walk or something to kind of get a break from some of the heaviness of this 400 year legacy? Hey, I'm white. It's a, mm. It would be a lot worse for me if I was black. Mm -hmm. I think if they can cope with it, I can cope with it. You know, I'm just, I'm just learning to cope with it now. Um, so, uh, I mean, 
I'm pretty good at doing that anyway because I'm always sort of thinking about you know difficult issues and working on my business so I'm quite quite good at stepping out when I need to I think although my my nearest and dearest perhaps wouldn't agree with me on that one but, um, yeah it's uh but it is very heavy but I think you know as I said earlier we don't want to get wrapped up in guilt because you know I think we need to feel it we need to understand it but then we need to find ways to move forward and be proactive and keep this initiative going and I really do believe that older people and women in particular can have a huge role to play in changing the world I, I always say it's part of my community and everything that I do that mm -hmm. midlife and beyond women we have immense authority if we just believe it, you know, we have wisdom, we have experience. And if we choose to step forward instead of stepping back, and many women get to midlife and it's like, oh, well, life's okay, I'll just carry on as I am. Or they decide that they need to leave a legacy, they want to leave a legacy, and they want to do something. And if anybody out there is feeling that, well, here is purpose on a plate. Aha. You, com you combine this with in the environmental activism that has you know come so much to the fore with covid you know that mm -hmm. now we don't have all the air pollution that we had four months ago because there's nobody flying around and transport is more restricted and but actually thinking about so what kind of new normal do we want because i certainly do not want to go back to the old mm. normal oh, whether that be from an environment standpoint or a racism standpoint, or just a, a sustainable economy standpoint. You know, I just, I'm not interested in the old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. So you and see this as an opportunity to reset? Absolutely. And it's funny because I always talk about menopause as being an opportunity to reset. Um, and that it is a time in life where we start to think about, you know, what we want to leave behind and what we want to take forward and who are we now. And as we go through menopause, we do become different because our hormonal profile is different. We're different. And we can do more, I believe, the older we get, not less. So I think we can really take a stand on this, whether it's, you know, becoming a keyboard warrior or just ranting to your great aunt Marge, you know, I don't know what it is, but, but actually stepping forward and, and doing the work, learning stuff, finding out, and then having difficult conversations with people and, and trying to push forward change rather than just accepting that life has to be the way it is because it's always been that way. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. either for us personally or for the world. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the Margaret Mead quote about nothing compares to the zest of a postmenopausal woman. No, but I love mm -hmm. that. How have I not heard that one? <laughs> I don't know. You're the, oh you're the queen of postmenopausal zest. I've missed that one, mm -hmm. haven't I? It's wonderful. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, this expression purpose on a plate, that has got to be the title because that's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant. Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, anybody wanting to really make a difference in the world, here it is staring you in the face. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. What a great uh, way to frame this is it's a, such an opportunity. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. I'm excited, actually. And you know what? 
with the people I've talked to about this, you know, the world would not have listened as hard as it has done to the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. if it were not for COVID. Aha. It just simply wouldn't have happened. We were all at home. We were all stuck. And the world responded in exactly the way that it should have done in the past, but didn't. And what was a wonderful sort of beam going around on social, you know, it's not that you've all had this wake up call. It's just that you've been hitting snooze for the last 400 uh, years. Uh -huh. <laughs> so these things just sort of came together at the exact right time. And of course, also seeing the video of, you know, George Floyd, you can't turn away. You can't no. say, oh, this is not really that bad of a problem. No, you can't. You can't, no. It's just changed. It's just changed everything. Mm. Talk a little, Rachel, about your offerings, your beautiful podcast. Uh, talk a little bit about your hub and where people can find you. Oh, thank you. Well, yes, no, normally I'm just talking about midlife. Mm. <laughs> um, but I am passionate about other issues as well, as you as you know. Um, so Magnificent Midlife, it's an online hub and it's a global community basically empowering and inspiring women over 40. There's all sorts of resources and courses on there. I have a members club, a monthly members club. I do one-to-one -one mentoring um, and I have the podcast where I share stories of women a bit like you, you know, who are doing brilliant things in midlife and beyond and sharing their stories. And you've been on it, which is uh, mm. which was wonderful because we like to celebrate everything that celebrates aging. Um, and uh, actually for the uh, for the members club, I would love to um, offer your listeners a discount. So um, mm -hmm. with the, the code Zestful25, okay. you can get 25% off the monthly membership and that will be forever, not just the first month. That'll be... Forever. Oh, wow. That's a lovely offer. So um, our our audience can just put in Zestful25 as a promo code. They go on MagnificentMidlife.com. Is that That's right, right, Rachel? Yes. Okay. And you can see more about Rachel and her uh, experience, her vibrance and passion. And um, it's hard not to uh, feel that's contagious. Is it? You oh, get, thank you, you get really. I love that about you. You get. They, there's no holding back, and yeah. I just, I, I love that. So your excitement and your, you know, you just very uh, much embracing these um, really important subjects. Mm -hmm. Any last words to our audience, Rachel, from, you know, what you've learned, what you've been thinking about, your awakening? I think, um, you know, a lot of women can get very stuck in midlife and beyond and sort of think, you know, that, that life is over or their best life was before. And we buy into all of these negative narratives, don't we? And yet... COVID can come along, Black Lives Matter can come along and our sense of, you know, perspective shifts overnight. You know, things that we thought were impossible are suddenly possible. Things that we thought were possible are no longer possible. So everything changes on a dime and we can change, we can pivot, we can have, you know, a marvellous, magnificent next chapter whenever we like if we are brave enough to take those steps and, and obviously get the support we need to be able to do that. So I would just say, you know, if there's something you want to do, if there's something you're passionate about, just go for it. Get the support you need. Um, learn what you need to learn um, and go for it. But 
you know, don't don't sit back. For heaven's sake, please don't sit back because we as midlife and beyond women, we have so much to offer the world and we can have influence. We can change it, change the world, both for ourselves and for the rest of population. And I think the world needs us, quite frankly. And the <laughs> really world, needs world, us. world needs us. And I think about, you know, when we get to the very end of life, what do we regret? We don't regret trying things and, no. and failing. We regret not trying. And I think on, on the, this aspect of racism, we are bound to get it wrong as white people. I am bound to get it wrong. I know that. You know, there'll be people listening to this probably who think, oh, my goodness, she smacks of white privilege, you know. <laughs> mm. But at least I'm trying. That, that's the thing. I'm trying. I'm, I'm open to having conversations. And I'm open to people saying to me, well, Rachel, that wasn't really what you should have said. Mm. And I go, okay, well, I'm, I'll learn because mm. life's about learning, isn't it? I love that message that we're not going to get it right. We don't know enough to get it no. right. Um, and we, but we want to know and we mm. want to learn. And I'm going to sort of end with that. I think that's a beautiful sentiment that some of us, I think, are afraid, you know, well, what should I do? I don't want to come off this way or that way. But it's really important to try. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for, for being courageous enough, you know, to have this conversation. This is not just about, you know, what colors look good or, you know, what haircuts look good on older women. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I really appreciate your willingness to not know and to have a conversation that's difficult. Well, I was really honored when you asked me to, you know, talk about this. So thank you for allowing me to share what I've learned so far. Well, continued good luck and congratulations on all of your good work. And I think it might be really helpful to have a follow-up, you know, maybe in a year to say, where are we now based on, you know, what we've learned and what we've tried. I'm definitely up for that. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. Uh, we give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different 
confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long exploratory you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. <music>